This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Great to be here. You survived Purim, all the drunkenness, yet here you are. You've rolled. Here I am. (laughs) On the actual day of Purim at 10 a.m. reporting for duty. Here you are. And uh, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibowitz. Those about to drink, we salute you. It's 10.04 in the morning. The McGill has been read. A podcast has to be recorded. And then the drinking begins. Is that today's schedule? That is very much today's and every other day's schedule. A really good show today. Super funny guest lineup. The Jew of the Week is Jeremy Dauber, who teaches Jewish literature and American studies at Columbia, has a new book out, a biography of Mel Brooks. And what a time because History of the World Part Two is on Hulu as we speak. So we're talking to Daubs about Brooks. And the Gentile of the Week, this is it's just a pop culture lollapalooza this week, is Elisa Donovan. You should remember her uh, from her role in Clueless as Amber, or as Morgan Cavanaugh in Sabrina the Teenage Witch, or her stunning arc on Beverly Hills 90210. She has a new book out. It's called Wake Me When You Leave. It's about love and encouragement via dreams from the other side. And it's about the loss of her father and how he's come to her in dreams. It's, it's really cool. And plus... She's Elisa Donovan. Before we get to all that, I want to do a Purim check. We're recording this uh, the morning of Purim. It began last night with the McGilla reading. Liel, Stephanie, uh, Purim updates from your part of the world? I want to hear from Stephanie as, as I feel she's like dipping her toes in Purim. I'm changed. I am a Purim queen. You know, I, I stand by what I said, which is that like it, when you have kids, it becomes a new thing. And this is the mm-hmm. first year I've experienced kids Purim, which is just like Halloween. And everyone just like shows up in costumes and goes to town. It's very, very sweet. Edith ate probably 25 hamantashen over the course of the weekend. But, you know, I, I did get some some good pushback on my my take last year, which is that like, you know, for a lot of people. It was last not, week, by the way. It may it may seem like last year because we've been drinking, but it was only last years week. of Purim. Um, it was a text from my friend Juliana who said, I listened to your Purim app and I was like, you missed out. Purim in college slash post-college is where it's at. And then she reminded me that she and her husband, Ruben, met at a Purim party. And here's the best part. The Purim party was at One Oak, which is like a very shishi club. And so they must have like had some Purim event and both gone there and met. And did Edith dress up as anything in particular or just no, funny she hat? Just, no, she made a crown in her Shabbat class, um, but she didn't want to wear it. So I wore it. I'm also in the part of parenthood where like, oh, it's just crafts all the time and I get to do them because she's too young to really do them. So I spent most of the weekend coloring. Like it's really all of my strengths and interests. Have you and Ben divided up certain tasks like the holidays? You know, for example, Sid, it is well known in our family, if we ever take the kids to Disney World, Sid's going and I'm taking a spa week myself because it's well known in our family, I don't do Disney World. Have you and Ben divided up certain things like you'll do the college trips, but he does Sukkot, but like- I don't know. I mean, I really like doing that stuff. We both went to the sort of Purim Fest on Sunday. All of our friends mm-hmm. were there. All their kids were in costume. It was like a very fun thing. We were like, oh, this is just Jewish Halloween. Everyone loves it. Jewish Halloween with snacks. It was perfect. I would hold, A, that it's as far from Halloween as as any holiday. I mean, that they both have costumes is the marginal fact. It's an amazing holiday. I will also say that, you know, the kids went this year as Cookie Monster, Lily, and uh, Hudson went as Elvis. He also decided to fast on his own accord, which made me very, very proud. But I want to share something that I learned on a totally kind of earnest note, because here's the thing. I mean... We do these holidays every year and it could really get wrote like you do the thing, right? Oh, it's the Purim routine, you know, roast the meat, bring out the bourbon, get drunk. I learned something beautiful from from my Rav, from Rav David Beshevkin, uh, who, who taught me on Twitter, which is where serious Torah is taught to you. This is where you go for real 
emotional. By the way, like, that's actually kind of true now. Oh, totally. Uh, for like, no, how much I, Twitter I, I mean, is it's... thriving and it's literally the best forum for it, right? Because it's like there's the text and then there's the subtext and then there's the supertext. Anyway. So on Twitter, Rabenu Bashevkin uh, said, you know, you give shlachmanis or mishloachmanot, if you insist, uh, on Purim to your friends. But here's what you should really do. You should really give it to people who you think need more friendliness or friends in their lives. And so, you know, I just spent a couple of days just walking around people who I haven't seen in a while, who I thought could use a nice little kind of conversation, hanging out, saying hello. It was, I don't know if it was any wonderful to them. I never assumed that a knock on the door and seeing me is wonderful for anyone, but it was really wonderful to me. So if you're listening to this on Thursday, it's no longer Purim, but you have rabbinic dispensation from the world's leading Jewish podcast to pick one person in your life you haven't seen in a while or you think could really use a, a check-in or a check-up or tune-in and just, you know, buy a cake, knock on the door, say hi. Rabbi Bashevkin, you've done us well. So, chazak, chazak, I couldn't agree more. And actually, that is not a terrible segue to the one thing I wanted to say about Purim last night at my shul, which is that I noticed there are a few people there whom I'd seen before last Purim. And I realized they are Purim Jews. And they, by the way, they're not parents. These are people who are somewhat older. I mean, they might be parents, but they weren't there because, oh, it's the kids' holiday, we'll come out for the kids. They were grown, child-free, or empty nester adults four or five of them, like two, a single and two couples who come just for porn. They, I don't see them on the high holidays. And I turned to the guy behind me, whom I'm not going to out. And I said, isn't this interesting? I think there are Purim Jews, Jews who don't come for Yontif. I don't see them at the Sukkot thing in the sukkah. I don't see them at pizza in the sukkah. I don't see them at Yom Kippur. They come only for Purim. I said, isn't that weird? I was being kind of cynical. And he said, yeah, they're sort of like the furries of the Jewish community. Ah. <laughs> I mean, he had clearly thought about this. He said, yeah, they, like, if there's the opportunity to put on a really weird costume, if there's Jewish kink, that's what they come out for. Not the opening of the book of life and the ceiling and who will be sealed for the year to I come. Love, and like, I love this. Just I love like, this take. They want wow. furry costume Judaism. And I thought, you know, that's hilarious and a little bit mean, but also- Yes. Profoundly like, true. Our holidays <laughs> are there for different people. And maybe there's a way, well, for one thing, this is one of the few holidays where you're required to go be with people because you have to hear the Megillah read, right? So you can't do it privately or like a Seder with your three friends or your you know, mom and dad and step-grandpa. You have to go somewhere where somebody competent can read the Megillah. So maybe this is observance, but also this is what gets them out. But isn't it beautiful that we have all these these different okay. entry points? I mean, what about the Tishabab Jews? I mean, <laughs> I mean, like what? Let's act, let's find these right? other subcultures of people. The Goth. That's the Goth holiday. <laughs> if you're you're really into death you and mourning, and you want to put on the, your black mascara and your little right. fake tears, like that's the Goth holiday, and, and it brings them out. And and the hippies, the hippies are two Bishva Jews. Yeah. By the way, that's totally true, right? There are people who have embraced the ecological and nature mm -hmm. parts of Tu B'Shvat. Um, totally. Okay, I like this. The builders, the mountain Jews are into Sukkot. They want to they go out and construct things. They want to live out in huts. We, we, we contain multitudes. Um, Which, by the way, I'm does sorry, all Mark, of it, though? They call, yeah, they're called Jews. Uh, Mark, I can't believe that you're calling it pizza in the sukkah and not pizza hut. I mean, this is really... A, you know, a missed opportunity. <laughs> to be fair, hills everywhere. The branding people... 
the branding people may this year on the flyer have put pizza in the hut, but but you're right. It should just be called Pizza Hut. You're totally <laughs> missed opportunity. Guys, the Purim discussion is fascinating. I love it. We could be here all week for it. But, you know, there is news of the Jews to get to. News of the Jews, theme music, please. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J News of the Jews. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. This week, there's really only one important event in the Jewosphere. I mean, there may be news from elsewhere. There may be a CPAC and an APAC and a this and a that. But on the Hulu, Mel Brooks' History of the World Part Two is rolling out daily as an eight-part series. The sequel to his great 80s classic, History of the World Part One, has finally at long last arrived. And as it is our job as Jewcasters to be there for you, we all watched it. This is so exciting because, okay, so this is History of the World Part Two. So this is basically like the new update. It has Mel Brooks's sign off. He's at the beginning, but it really has been- His Hexer. It's, it's helmed by Nick Kroll, Mike Barinholtz, Wanda Sykes. And it's this sort of like next generation Mel Brooks thing. And it's really fun. And for me, I was made to watch Mel Brooks movies at a very young age, probably too young, um, some might say. I think I watched History of the World Part One when I was like five or six. The Lord Jehovah has given unto you these 15, 10, 10 commandments. And so it's sort of been imprinted in my brain. We could do a thing where like the Howard Batnick movie club, where I can tell you like the birds carry. There was like a real De Palma phase. It was all horror and Mel Brooks. (laughs) It was horror, violence, and Mel Brooks. No, it was like high-end cinema. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. um, I'm, I'm a very weird person as a result of it. But, um, I, I loved it so much. I think, I, I mean, I love Nick Kroll. I love everything he does. He's been on our show. He's the best. Can, can we stop and say uh, the, the greatest thing that we, even if none of the jokes were good and a lot of them are very good, nothing could have been better or more worthwhile than the anointment of Rav Nick Kroll as the next Mel Brooks, which totally. is completely, completely correct. And by correct the way, opinion. the next Larry David too, because there's the whole Curb Your Judaism. That's like how they do the, <laughs> the, the story of Jesus, where it's like basically a Curb Your Enthusiasm riff. And it's like, he's he's ascended. And I love it. I love that for him. I love that for us. I'll just, without, I don't want to give it away. People should go watch it on Hulu. It's about, it's about history. It's about history. You'll learn <laughs> a lot of history. You could, you could probably pass the AP exam. It's great. I will just, without, Spoiling all of it, I will say that the idea that Shakespeare's plays were produced by a writer's room <laughs> was, was absolutely- the funniest thing. What ideas have you got for Shakespeare? What if we do a play, but it's got music and singing? People sing their feelings. <laughs> My favorite, the idea that they're all pitching ideas. You know, the idea that there's a writer's room behind Shakespeare, which weirdly is, you know, there are people who believe that. So I just think it was, it's very, very funny. And honestly, like, I, I was so pleasantly surprised because I, you know, I, I expected it to be a decent enough, you know, funny-ish bit of entertainment, but also, you know, in the spirit of so much of contemporary comedy, thought that it would be completely you know, de dejuified. I-, I thought it would be so careful as not to preserve this body, very ethnic, very Jewy kind of core that Mel Brooks's best work had. And it was totally not true. It had exactly, it felt to me like, you know, like an echt original Mel Brooks. Like, again, not to spoil any of the jokes, but the skit where Nick Roll and his family are in the shtetl and the Cossack <laughs> comes. Please, like, it's oh, pronounced shithole, according to the sign. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's not He's not the worst anti-Semite. I know him. He's okay. 
But by the way, I actually found that that was so brilliant because it made me realize something about Fiddler on the Roof where there is this conceit that like, they know they're Cossacks. You know, one of the reasons they're so upset when they get driven out of town is because these were the Cossacks they'd grown up with. They've been getting a good ass kicking from these Cossacks. It's it's like the cheers of Cossacks. It's where everybody knows your name. They're not always glad you came, but you know. They they were drinking in the same pub. Periodically, one of them would stomp their face, but it was all in good fun. And the idea that actually there's going to be a real pogrom is so, it's so wounding to their (laughs) self-respect. For me, okay, so I watched Mel Brooks. That was the text, right? If you you start your cinematic world history with him, then actually Jewish humor is front and center in a way that like, you almost don't get how subversive all of his stuff was at the time. I think that there's something so interesting when when he becomes the text and not the subtext, mm-hmm. then you're like, of course, Jewish humor is universal. It's, it's actually not, wasn't the case at all. And so it's so interesting to see Mel Brooks now front and center at the top of these, these episodes, sort of being the Orson Welles voiceover. And I just, I love it. I love it because it shows how far we've come. And it kind of reminds me that when I was watching The Nanny, I did not realize that she was supposed to be Jewish. Like, I just didn't occur <laughs> just, to, I, I, right, I didn't realize she was a stereotype. She's just a person. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's what it happens when you raise your kid in a place where everyone's Jewish. But like, it, it is interesting to come at it from this perspective where you're like, I don't know. And I love that there's like so much Jewy stuff in this thing too. And of course it touches on things that like the first series would never have because it was in a different time. But I found it very heartening in a weird way. Like, it made me happy that this is around and that young people, like people who can watch this on Hulu and then tap back into the original. It made me think that there should be, in a, you know, for, remember the Super Bowl ad series that, that, we were, that I proposed, you know, Jews, we gave you the Sabbath, you're welcome. We gave you comedy. You're welcome. Right. Yeah. Right. right? Little fucking gratitude, please. Yeah, stop um, trying to run us out of town still. <laughs> <laughs> Mel Brooks, History of the World, Part One. Our Gentile of the Week is Elisa Donovan. She played Amber in Clueless. She was on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. She played the unimprovably named Ginger LaMonica in Beverly Hills 90210. Uh, Basically, she was there for my entire childhood. And now she's here for my adulthood as well. Stephanie and I had the privilege of talking with her a couple weeks ago. Elisa, thank you so much for being on Unorthodox. I am thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. As somebody born in 1974... Your work has literally been important to me at every stage of my conscious life. And so oh. it's it's so great uh, to have you here. I mean, thank you. the music video, the TV shows you were in, the ev- just everything. So great to have you here. So you first entered my consciousness with Clueless, a movie I saw between 15 and 20,000 times. Um, and I'm curious, do you look back on that movie fondly? Was that a, was that a good experience? Was, was, it, was it like a fun set? Oh, I mean, it was it was a very fun set. Yes. I mean, I was terrified, though. It was my first big job and I took it very seriously. I was reading. I was a very serious kid. I was reading Giovanni's room. If you want to know, I was reading Baldwin in my trailer while everyone else was like, you know, I don't know what they were doing, but I don't think it was that. <laughs> had you had a stage mom or dad? Had you been or were you self-directed? I mean, how, how did you get in front of the camera? No. Right. So in first grade, we did a first grade play. And it was called Westward Ho, Ho, Ho. 
And I played Ralph Rotten, the bad guy. And I got completely enmeshed in this whole preparation for this character. And I wanted to have a black button up. And, you know, for seven-year-olds, they just don't make black button-up shirts. We got the writ dye. We did all these things and it turned gray and not black. And my mom was like, can I just get a witness? This is not that big of a deal. And I just completely fell in love with it. But I didn't understand that you could have a career or a job. You know, no one in my family was in any creative careers at all. So I started to study outside of school in maybe seventh grade. I have two questions. First of all, how old were you when you played a 17-year-old or 16-year-old character? I was born in 71, and we shot it in 93. So I was 22, going to be 23, yeah. I mean, what's so great about that movie is how smart it is about walking the line between kind of a campy irony about the characters and a genuine affection for the characters. Yes. And is yeah. that something that's just magical or that that, did you know before you actually saw it how well you were striking that balance and how unusual that was? Were you aware of what you were making? I mean, when I read the whole script, I went, this is genius. And I also knew immediately, I said, this is based on Emma. And everyone was like, Emma who? You know, like, well, it's kind of a big book. I mean, I was a 19th century English novel major in college. So I'm like, let me teach my lunch hour class about what's going on here. Um, But, you know, you just never know. And again, because it was the first big film that I had made, I I just thought, oh, everything is, I guess, this good. You know, every script is brilliant. Every script is brilliant. And every director is that specific and that able to get. And was it was it Amy Heckerling who directed it? Yes. Yes. Who had made Fast Times at Ridgemont. I mean, she's one of the great geniuses. What was she like as a director? She knows this genre so well. And she's just, she has this very youthful spirit and she is, she was so kind. It, it was, you know, a blessing and a curse to work with somebody so great so early because you would do, I would do something or any of us. And then she would just give you a little bit of a different idea, like do it let as if this is happening. And you'd think, well, why would I do that? And then you're like, okay, well, let me try that. And then you go, oh, that's because she's smarter than I am. That's why I'm going to do it that way. <laughs> you know, she was really, really great. Is it weird to be here all these years later talking about it? Like, w- yes. do you feel in some ways <laughs> that like being so well known for something that was so successful, is that annoying? Is it like beyond the gratitude? Of course, I'm sure you have. Like, is it is it annoying talking about this? No, I don't I don't think it's annoying and I I don't feel annoyed with people come up to me and want to talk about it or say something kind like I think that's special and lovely. But it definitely is you know it's it's it becomes something that you have to try to pivot from as an actor because the irony is when you're really good at something as an actor then people think that's what you do and who you are and you're going no that's actually part of you know, the job is that you're becoming another person. And it also, you had the blessing and the curse of making really good choices. I mean, you did what? One season on 90210 as as Valerie's, as Tiffany Amber Thiessen's friend from yes. back home, from Buffalo, was it? From, from Buffalo. New York, from Buffalo. Buffalo and you did Sabrina. And I mean, you made choices that were iconic. I mean, I you, can, you, you must have gotten a pile of scripts and you chose stuff that was really epic in the culture. I mean, it's funny. I love that you feel I had more agency over this than I did, but <laughs> um, I remember the the movies that I wanted to do that I didn't get, although actually, no, I can't remember them, but I specifically remember, well, one was it, nothing ever happened with it. But to me, 
we were shooting this series of Clueless and the casting director, a very iconic casting director. And he, we had a meeting and he's like, you can't do this movie because you're doing this TV show. And I was like, yes, I can. I've already done that before. I shot another movie at the same time. He's like, no, no, you gotta be. And we had this very funny like banter where I was trying to convince him to convince the director that I could do the movie. And he was like, no, you can't. Like we just, we need somebody who's present the whole time. You can't be like shuttling back and forth, which is how I did a night at the Roxbury. I was like Looney Tunes because I was exhausted. And then we just sort of start crying on the set of the series of Clueless. And they're like, um, is, is Lisa okay? Like what's going on over here? <laughs> so I don't, I don't remember the name of that film, but I guess I made good choices. It was Titanic. <laughs> it was Titanic. <laughs> Me and Kate. S- sorry to bring that welcome, back for Kate. you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so interesting because you have this this new book out, Wake Me When You Leave, Love and Encouragement Via Dreams from the Other Side. And it's it's this other side of you. But there is a lot in here about, you know, what it's like being on a set and going from and I'm, I'm going to ask you to you know talk about the book a little bit. But I'd love to dive into this idea that like the TV set as a reality where you sort of like have this family of people that you're really, really close to. And then the reality of having like your own family where things are inherently more complicated. Can you tell us a little bit about that duality that you've dealt with in your life? Yes. I think that as I was writing the book, it really, that became a highlight of, to me where I went, oh, this is why you love this family life on a set and how, you know, you work such crazy long hours together that ultimately, even if you have the best relationships with people, little arguments happen and people get weird and people have relationships and those relationships break up and that, you know, you have all these kind of dysfunctional things, but they're really all based in this common goal that you have of making the show or the, or the film. And, you know, in my own family, I've just constantly felt misunderstood a lot of the time. So, you know, I always idealized, even when my, when my dad was sick, especially, I thought, oh, now is going to be the time where we have all these great conversations, you know, where I sit by his bedside and he tells me how proud of me he is of the things that really matter to me, you know, and these, we'd have these, you know, in-depth emotional exchanges and, you know, that just didn't happen. (laughs) And so they are, you know, there are these parallels, I think, to, family life on a set. And it's why people call it that. I think it's the the commonality is that you can't escape it, right? You can't, you can't, it's not like you can go in your trailer, but you can't, you don't shoot a TV show on your own. Mm-hmm. So you can't, you know, it, it is an inescapable community, like a family, you know, you can't, I don't care how far around the world you go, you, you don't escape where you come from. What inspired you to, to write this book and to sort of get so personal with the public? I mean, I've always been a writer. I've been a writer as long, probably longer than, than an actor. And I also had a wonderful writing mentor teacher in high school who said to me, you should write like this. You should write autobiographical fiction. And, uh, again, thought like, well, who does that? How, like, what is, who does that? So all along I've been writing and I did this, what essentially a version of the book as a one woman show at the Geffen at the um, Audrey Skirball, which is the smaller theater at the Geffen. But I always was writing it as a book and people said, well, you're a performer and you should 
write it as a, as a play or a movie. And I went, I want to, I want to write it as a book. Like that's the kind of writing that really feeds me. And I think that I started to write it because it was very healing for me. It was just my process. And then I realized, oh, this is a part of my soul's purpose. This is actually what I'm supposed to be doing on the planet. You know, when, when, when something happens that is so disruptive on essentially every level, every human level, which is what it felt to me, my personal, my professional, my family, everything changed. I think that you're supposed to pay attention. Those, the, those things matter. And to me, I realized through that very challenging, unpleasant experience that, oh, actually this is for a purpose. Like this is what I'm supposed to do now going forward. And so even though I didn't really know how to make any of that happen at the time, I made a really conscious decision that this is the sort of work I want to do. This is the way. And when we, I did the play, it had the effect on people that I wanted where they laughed and they cried and they wanted to talk about their experiences. And I realized how culturally we don't, we don't like to talk about difficult things. We don't want to, we kind of want to keep things very shiny and happy and, I, I just think that we're doing ourselves a disservice because it's a very, it's a f- part of the fabric of the human experience, right? Is there stuff you read while you were writing this that helped you along or informed it? Yes. Uh, uh, Pima Chodron's book. Um, I feel like it's on my desk. It's always close by. <laughs> uh, not the places that scare you. Oh, when things fall apart. Mm-hmm. I think that's what mm-hmm. it's called. When things fall apart. That helped me massively. And um Joan Didion's book, The Year of Magical Thinking, that came yeah. out somewhere around this. And at first I couldn't read that book. It was too, yeah, too close. It was yeah. too close. So, but then I did read that, those two. And also um, Darkness Visible. What's the Styron book? Darkness oh, William Styron, yeah. No, I think it's Darkness Visible. I think it's, I think you got it right. I think you nailed it, yeah. Which is about his depression. depression. Is, is that the, right, yes. right. Yes. I actually haven't read that, but people who have told me it is the bleakest, most visceral description of depression that you could imagine. Yeah. Like what, it, what it's like to lose all hope in that way when, when you have clinical depression. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so some, some light reading, some light reading. <laughs> just what you would think from your characters, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like when we see actors, we just assume one thing about them. Yes. It's sad, but it's like, oh, it's so cool to hear all these things. But I mean, that's so crazy that we think that, like we think so little basically of people who act on screen, right? Where we're like, they must not read. Right. <laughs> Which is <laughs> yeah, like offensive. Well, sometimes they don't, but uh, I do think that it's a natural thing where especially, I mean, film is very much the same, but TV, especially people were, were in your living room. Like most of the time you're in your PJs with a blanket, like hanging out, whatever, you know, like you're, you're very comfortable and you're in your own environment. So it creates this feeling of, oh, I know this person, you know, or I can just go up to them. So you kind of imagine whatever you imagine about people on screen and it's not always, and I think that's also why, you know, the, the things that I talk about in the book, which of which there were far more than I put in there of people coming up to me when I was visibly weeping, you know, like weeping about my dad and everything and just coming up and saying, Oh my gosh, I can't believe it's you. Like I love, and they just talk. And I don't think, you know, 90% of the time, it's very good spirited, right? They're not trying to ignore that. I'm. It's like, they're just excited and they really don't notice 
that that you're crying, you know? It's also a little bit presumptuous as if you're not a person. I mean- Yes, you exist for them, basically. You're an acquisition for them. They can now tell their friends, you're not going to believe who I saw or who's- Who I saw crying. Right, crying. crying. (laughs) I mean, I think often how much worse it would be, you know, if all of these things had happened to me now, because- everybody has a, like, it would immediately be me weeping on someone's TikTok or something. Do you know what I mean? It would be like the reach is just so much greater. So tell us a little bit about what was going on with you, what to you at that time. And that's sort of what's depicted in this book, why you were crying when those people came up to you. Yes. So over the course of a very short period of time, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. Sabrina was canceled, which was the TV show that I was working on. And I thought, oh, I'm going to move on to another great series because that's what I'm going to do. And I went through that pilot season and tested, I think, 11 times, which means when you do that, you go, your lawyer goes through the contracts. There are all these things you do any one time that you go through that process. I did 11 times and I didn't get a job. And then my relationship ended with the person I thought I was going to marry. And it was mutual. Like I, that was my choice also. Like it just was not working, but we were devastated that it wasn't. Like I really loved this person. And so all these things happened at the same time. And then my dad passed away very quickly. And so everything just fell apart. What felt like instantaneously and anything that I tried to hold on to just was taken away. There was this other talk show that they had been essentially really, really pressure, like wanting me to do the network and the producers and they're sending me things and gift baskets and Jimmy Choo shoes and, you know, come do this thing. And then they just said, actually, we don't, we, we, we don't want Elisa to do this. And she's, you know, we don't want an actress on the panel. She's too, um, she'll be too kind of out of touch that people won't, won't identify, you know, we don't want actors on the thing. And I just went, Oh, okay. And so that just kept happening. And then, you know, something sort of amazing happens in the later part of the book, which is sort of the subhead, right? Like from the other side. Will you tell us a little bit about how, what happens with your relationship with your father after all of this? Yes. So the thing that was the most striking, kind of like the apex of this whole experience and then everything shifted is there was one night that I could not, I mean, I did not sleep very much during this period, but I was just exhausted and I was wandering around my apartment and going, Oh my God, I just need to sleep. And I had this moment of where I, I literally said, God, help me sleep. Like I just, I need to rest. And I had this experience of feeling this hand on my chest that just literally put me down in my bed and told me to go to sleep. And I at the time, I was like, am I imagining this? I don't care. I went to sleep and I had this dream that anyone who's had a visitation dream will understand what I'm talking about, that it's very different than a regular um, unconscious dream, a, a dream you would have when you just go to sleep. It's so distinctly different. And um, it's like uh, as as tangible and as real as being awake but there's this pureness to it. And my dad, it was my dad and we were on this boat. And this, when I woke up from this experience, it was the most powerful thing. I sat up and I just, I think I screamed and I just started bawling and I went, oh my God, he's trying to talk to me. Like he's trying to reach me. And it was the deepest 
connection to him I had ever felt, much more so than when he was alive. So that started this process of me realizing that I had been kind of not wanting to to let him come in, that he had been trying to do that. Like I had been getting these messages that I was pretending I wasn't hearing. And, you know, I'm a person who goes to psychics and feels, you know, I'm not afraid of these things, but when they were actually happening to someone that I cared so deeply about, it was very arresting and sort of scary. But then I eventually settled into it. And, you know, he, I had several dreams where he came to me. And then also in my waking life, all sorts of experiences of, you know, and so many people have these experiences. And as soon as I started talking about it, people would say, oh, this has happened to me. Or, you know, you hear a piece of music at a very strange time that is directly related to the, the person who's passed or you can have, I mean, there were so many things like this that, that happened that really helped me to understand, oh, I, my relationship is not over with my father. And actually we can have a deeper and closer relationship now than when he was alive. And that's a really bizarre concept to some and, and first people to hear and maybe understand, but when it happens, it's like, it's shifted my entire understanding of, of what it is to be human and of what death is. And, you know, I have had a lot of experiences now since then of people's spirits, you know, um, it's, it sounds crazy if you, don't believe, like you might think I sound Looney Tunes, but it's pretty, it's pretty concrete and I don't have any doubt about it. Hey, we do a podcast about, you're trying to people do a podcast about religion. So, you know, right. you've, <laughs> you've, you've come to the right Jewish podcast. Yes. And speaking, speaking <laughs> yeah. of which, speaking of which, uh, we always give our non-Jewish guests, our Gentiles of the week, the opportunity to ask a question. This is a safe space where anything you want to know about Jews, Judaism, if we don't know the answer, we'll make it up that we are an internationally recognized panel of experts of two experts today. Is there anything we can tell you? Yes. So we are going to a bar mitzvah and I've never gone. I mean, when I was a child of that age, I went to a few bar mitzvahs, but I, I haven't been to one as an adult. And I know there is something about the multiples of 18 or the number 18. You have come to the right place. What you're supposed to give as a gift. So we want to one, give an appropriate gift, but also understand, I want to understand what that is. Well, first they've told you about the thing you're supposed to wear yellow, right? No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm totally kidding. I'm just messing with you. Can you imagine? (laughs) You know, I'm going to write all this down and show up and I'll be like, Oh, I just like a banana. Right. Bright canary yellow <laughs> pantsuit. Yellow pantsuit is no, okay. I'm totally making that up. No, your question is totally is dead odd. Lots of people will 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 want to know our answer to this. Stephanie, you've been to way more bar and bat mitzvahs than I have as a Long Island native. So this is this is squarely in Butnik territory. Yeah. But I haven't been to any in a while, and you're now in the kids mode, Mark. That's true. So, I mean, My do kids you want to talk a little bit about high and the 18? Why don't I tell you about the 18 and you can take the what's the appropriate gift, which I feel like is the more loaded one. Okay, so in, um, you know, it's, you're talking about mysticism and these kind of far reaches of spirituality that some people don't want to deal with. And actually in Judaism, a lot of Jews like to think, oh, our religion is so rational. It's just about treating people well and doing the 10 commandments. But actually 
There are very weird mystical depths to Judaism coming out of the medieval era. And one of them is this practice of numerology where letters get assigned certain numbers. Yes. So, okay. and the letters for the word chai, like, you know, lachayim, which means to life. Mm-hmm. Chai, which means life, is it's a chet and a yud. And if you if you add up the number values of those two letters, you get 18. Uh-huh. So 18 is the number representing life. And so Jews will often give gifts or donations. Like if I'm, if I get a request from a charity and I want to, you know, I'll give 18 bucks or 180 or 30 or multiples thereof, you can 36, right? So that is where the tradition comes from. And all, even very secular Jews who are not super religious will often recognize, will usually recognize why a gift would come in a multiple of 18, though it's not required. Like you can give 10 or a hundred or a thousand, but 18, 36, 72 are very customary Jewish numbers. Oh, I love that. And so like three of my daughters have had bat mitzvahs and there are like a lot of checks for 18 and $36 coming in. Right. So, right. so that's, that's where it comes. You're totally right. And that's where it comes from. And but, here's the hard thing. Yeah. It depends on where you are <laughs> in the world of, of which denomination you're giving, right? Like some places, yeah, all the kids give 18. If you're going as a family, you might have to give more. I mean, I feel like it's tough to say. Will you tell us where we're going? In Beverly Hills. Okay, so oh. <laughs> maybe like three sixty. I don't know. Uh, right, I know. My husband's like eighteen. Close- eighteen is fine. <laughs> eighteen hundred. Um, no, I feel like I can't. I can't tell you the exact amount that you should give. It's it's with the full family. I don't know. This is really really tough. But I think that no matter what it is, I mean, it's so funny. Some people do like. If you were going to give 300, you give 318. And then some people will be like, no, 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 I'd give 360. That's not even a multiple of 18. Right. It should be a multiple of 18, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. You'll see the $118 gift, which is like- and You're like, no, no, yeah. it should be 180. It should be 180 or 72, <laughs> but but it's not 180. Yeah. Um, I think like 180 is a really nice number. I just think- If you want to be a little passive aggressive, let's say you don't like them and you feel you're being a little bit extorted <laughs> for money, like you're on the list because they want more presents. A move, a move that I've pulled is giving a gift certificate to an independent bookstore for $72. And it's like, or even more, but it's like, okay, kid, I'll give you the 1872, the 180, but the only thing you can spend it on is is Giovanni's room or Emma. Exactly. (laughs) I'll give him 72 copies of my book. Oh, I I love that. Love it. Love it. They have a lot of resources, this family. So it's not, they're not looking for a check from us really. So that's the other thing. We, We want to do something appropriate And then, but I, like kids don't, other friends have said, if you buy a gift, you really just run the risk of, oh, they already have that. They don't need it. They don't want it. Another great move is the donation in a multiple of 18 to a really mean, like what charity would the kid, the kid loves animals, give to the SPCA $180 and send them a note saying, we want you to know we've given X amount in your honor to the Humane Society or whatever. Right. That sounds like a good. That's really nice. And especially if you do it in the the numerals of 18, that shows like, oh, I, I, I mean, it's hard because it's like Beverly Hills. People know this stuff. But like, <laughs> I think anytime like someone who isn't Jewish shows that interest, I think it's just like very moving. If, any culture, right? Like if someone takes the time to understand why you do that weird thing you do, um, right. <laughs> people really, you know, appreciate it. That was a great movie, That Weird Thing You Do. <laughs> uh, it's been so great having you here. Thank you so much. Um, if people want to get the book, where would you, where on the interweb would you send them to get your book? They can get the book anywhere they buy books. Amazon, Barnes & Noble. There are links on all my social media and my uh, website. All my social media is Red Donovan or Facebook, I think is Elisa Donovan, but they all have the little blue check. 
and really get anywhere. And the audiobook is also available on all the platforms, Audible, et cetera, um, and I read it. Nice, as you should. Lisa Donovan, thank you so much for being our Gentile of the Week. I have loved it. are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. To the mailbox, a very, very spicy mailbox this week. We begin with someone taking Liel Leibowitz to task. Dear Unorthodox, I haven't always agreed with Liel, but his latest transgression is just too much. According to the picture in the newsletter, he is serving the rootless cosmopolitan in a plastic cup. Surely only a chilled martini glass will do. I look forward to his reply in the apology episode later this year. Shabbat shalom, Ron. Liel? Ron, you you don't have to wait until the apology episode. My apology is sincere. Uh, it is heartfelt, and it's coming right now. Look, man, uh, our our guests from the Jesuitical podcast came to our office, and though Tablet HQ is blessed with with many accoutrements, including a very surprisingly well stocked bar cart, or maybe not surprisingly, because you know uh, I'm I'm there sometime. Uh, we don't have proper glassware. This is literally the only thing I could procure. I was ashamed of it at the time. I am ashamed of it now. And I promise to act swiftly to rectify this travesty. Liel, I forgive you. But the real question is, will Ron forgive you? And will Hashem forgive you? I think Hashem will. The rest of the mailbox this week was just filled with people responding to the question I posed to you. Thank you for allowing me to crowdsource this, J. Crew. I wanted to know why people in shul, after an aliyah or a, a terrific Torah reading or whatever, sometimes go, we got a whole bunch of answers. Paul Nakamuli wrote to us. He said, it's a from thing, meaning from the religious world that's been making its way into a non-from world. He pointed us to Google. We're at the website Jewish English Lexicon. Somebody said that it existed in a Yiddish dictionary circa 1910. It's an exclamation of respect or a playful reminder, but it can also be a playful reminder to someone who was given an honor that they should not take themselves too seriously. Others wrote in, Hi, guys. Long-time listener, second or third-time writer. It's not from the left. It's from the right, the yeshivish world. And I agree with Liel. I hate it. It's often done sarcastically for minor accomplishments. I go to a modern Orthodox shul, and it's the annoying guys who do this. Keep up the good work. I'm not going to say his name because I don't want him to get a beat down from the annoying guys who go, Psh. Although, honestly, the guys who go, Psh, are not the guys who are going to beat you up. Just saying. <laughs> 
This is a great one. Hey, Mark, I'm afraid that, as with Schlockrock, you are woefully behind the curve with psh. I can't shed any light on exactly where it comes from, but I'm reasonably sure it does not come from the progressive corners of Judaism, as you opined. In our modern Orthodox synagogue here in Baltimore, it's been used for over a decade. It does seem to be more common among the younger crowd, so I expect it was something picked up in yeshiva. Avid listener for many years, Michael Cherniansky. Well, Cherniansky, uh, thank you for that. We also got some some phone calls to our listener line. A couple people called us uh, with ideas for what we could do instead. Hi, this is Karen calling from Oakland, California. At my synagogue, we shout Yashikoach after every Aliyah. Yashikoach! As soon as the Amen is finished. We learned this in Australia back in the 90s. So, hey, just uh, let's start shouting Yashikoach as a synagogue, as a community, instead of pshing people. Thanks. And here's another listener with a similar bit of advice. Hello, J. Crew. This is Aviv, driving his kids to Jewish day school in the morning traffic in the San Francisco Bay Area. Just wanted to say that in the San Francisco Bay Area, we just yell out Yashar Koach. That way you've got the tradition of Yashar Koach and what you want yelling out together. Why does it need to be said quietly? Yashar Koach to you on your many episodes. May you continue to grow in strength. And finally... Uh, my own rabbi, Eric Woodward, known in my parts as the New Havener Rebbe, also called in with his, since he feels responsible for having brought it to my synagogue, I think he also felt he had to call in. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Woodward from Beth El Kesser Israel Synagogue of New Haven, Connecticut. I will say that psh is often used, I think, to hype people up before something happens and that Yasher Koach is used after something happens. So when you get invited up, you say, Psh, and when you do a good job, they say, Yasher Koach, be well. And then one more voicemail. Here's a guy who has what I think is the, the best bit of advice for what could replace Psh. Hi, it's Joshua Peck, the only Jew in Clarksville, Georgia. I know what people should say when you do something right in shul. They should say, hallelujah. We invented it. Um, it's been co-opted. Let's co-opt it back and say it with gusto. To this, I only say, Hallelujah. I also loved this take from our publisher, Morty Landown. He says, if psh has come to Mark's minion, it's because it has become even more Hamish. That's right. He's saying that your minion has become more Hamish. Over the years, he writes, I've noticed that form of compliment seems to increase based on the comfort level of congregants with each other, the rituals of prayer, and the shul itself. He says this is low church in the best way. Familiarity breeds <laughs> Friends, please call us with your thoughts on this or lots of things. Watch the Mel Brooks series. Tell us what you think about that. Uh, tell us how your Purim was. 914-570-4869 or write to us unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Our big Jew of the week is Jeremy Dauber. He teaches Yiddish literature and American studies at Columbia, and he's basically an expert on Jewish humor. He joined Liel and Mark to talk about his new book, Mel Brooks, Disobedient Jew. He conquered fear and he conquered hate. He turned dark night into day. Professor, Roastmaster, Master of Ceremonies, Jeremy Dauber, welcome to the show. It's so great to be here. It's great to hang out with you guys. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. So you wrote what 
is now, by virtue, by default, by grace of God, the seminal book on Mel Brooks, uh, which I enjoy tremendously. <laughs> and I want to start the discussion by reading back to you something that you write fairly early on in the book that I think really neatly encapsulates Brooks's genius. Um, you can't be the master parodist of the American Western and the American horror movie and the American silent film and the American suspense picture and so on without a deep familiarity and love for the material. And yet you have to be outside it as well to feel estranged enough from it to point out its flaws, its ridiculous features, its aesthetic commissions, and even its moral failures. In short, you have to be the loyal opposition which is as good a way of describing a certain American Jewish attitude as any. Capturing, of course, the great ethos of Mel Brooks, who I didn't know, but I now know having read your book, signed his letter, Your Obedient Jew, Mel Brooks. <laughs> Explain this outside, inside tension and, and why and how it made Melvin Brooks so great. I think you're right that in some ways, that passage hopefully really encapsulates not only what I was trying to do, but really what Brooks and in some ways a lot of American Jewish entertainers were trying to do and, and, and the situation they found themselves in, which is this was part of their desire for kind of acceptance as a minority sort of in the American mainstream. And what that meant for them was to sort of really embrace fully what it was about American culture sort of writ large that they loved, even as they were creating it as well. And yet at the same time as they did that, as they immersed themselves in almost this religion kind of of American culture, they understood that they were not quite it. They were not quite part of it. And as a result, what at least some of them, and particularly the comedians did, and, and someone like Brooks, was to say, you know, I see it, I love it, I'm suffused with it, but I can also look at where its gaps are, and I can see what they don't talk about. And in doing that, I can play that for sort of these parodic changes that really sort of just make wonderful comedy, because... Also, everyone else will recognize, oh, yes, those things aren't in it. Yes, that's very funny. That's right. These are conventions and artifices, too. So it's a way of sort of bringing everyone together in that position in some ways that Mel Brooks is in, too, and sort of creating this kind of acceptance. Let's start him off at the very beginning, since this is, you write, again, tongue, I think, only partly in cheek in the beginning. It's a, it's a Jewish biography of Mel Brooks, as if you could write any other biography of Mel Brooks. <laughs> set, us, set us in the beginning. He grows up the son of... Two immigrants, one from Germany, one from Kiev. Father dies when he's young, which is sadly not an anomaly for a lot of entertainers. And he grows up in this beautifully, you know, almost fully immersed, almost hermetically sealed, very Jewish world, right? Tell us about that world. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I had, I had titled the first chapter, uh, A Jew Grows in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I do think that that's right, that, that Brooklyn, particularly at that time, was first uh, suffused with a kind of Jewish cultural identity. And it was not primarily for, for certainly for Brooks and for, you know, a kind of religious identity, but it was a huge Jewish first generation energy that was filled with music and aspiration and drive and moxie and Jewishness and Yiddish all in all of that all together. And that really was part of what made Brooks. And, and it was an outer borough, you know, where you could sort of look across the bridge to, to Manhattan. And particularly at that point, the movies were just beginning to come in in a big way, but but to, to Broadway, to the theater, and just see 
what there could be to be aspired to. And it was that combination of this, you know, real home and this place to go to sort of go to that I think really was the push and pull of Brooks's sort of career. As you pointed out, Leo, the fact that he lost a parent in early time, that there was this sense of loss is not uncommon often among sort of comedians. It's kind of early trauma, but certainly for Brooks, it led to a lifetime of looking for kind of surrogate father figures, most famously the one he found was in Sid Caesar, who really was this kind of paternal figure to him and was responsible for sort of the the, the launch of this glittering career. So, so let's talk about Sid Caesar for a second. And I promise at some point I, I may let Mark ask a question that you can hear <laughs> the, 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 you know, nervous enthusiasm in, in my voice because this is literally my, my absolute favorite movie director. I learned also from your book that Sid Caesar is actually Sid Caesar's name. Sid Caesar was born <laughs> Sid Caesar. Which, by the way, also true of Dua Lipa. Right. You can't believe it's her real name. But it, but it is. I know. It wow. is. Yeah. That I did not know. But yeah, I mean, I have checked it, you know, over the course of the Jewish comedy book, this book, multiple, because I every time I can't believe it. I'm like, I, I'm, you know, but, but that was his name. And he really was, I have, again, a phrase in the book, I think that are like, it was like being jealous of the lightning right. um, for, for season. <laughs> like, because he just was such a talent, right? And and everybody sort of saw this with him. Um, and so it was, you know, just an amazing, amazing comedic individual. I think we all know how much he shaped sort of the, the post-war, not just American Jewish comedy, but post-war American comedy with your show of shows. But even with knowing that, I still think in some ways we underestimate what a, what a tectonic force the man was. So for those of us who, who don't know, how did he shape American comedy? And, and, and even more importantly, for the purposes of this conversation, how did he shape Melvin Kaminsky into Mel Brooks? So Caesar, you know, comes out really of this launching ground for American television and through American television, a variety of sort of a lot of American Jewish comedy and American Jewish comedy, the Borscht Belt. And, you know, he really finds his metier in these shows and sort of things that come out of that with this producer named Max Liebman. And one of the things that he is able to do in your show of shows is throw together a number of different kinds of things. First, a showcase for individual comedic talent, which in Caesar's case combined an incredible kind of ventriloquistic tendency, just a tremendous amount of voice with a real genius for physical and slapstick comedy. So that was one thing, right? He was also capable of creating these sort of domestic skits on your show shows with a murderer's row of writers in that room, that writer's room, that were the basis in, in many ways for almost all of the situation comedies that we've seen on television ever since. And if that weren't enough, your show of shows is also responsible in deep ways for this kind of meta conceit of looking at parodies of television shows, of news programs, of movies that Brooks was very involved in that we, we see as part of our kind of meta consciousness of pop culture to this day. And Caesar was sort of reigning over all of this in a lot of fundamental ways. Now, as you said, one of the things that Caesar did for our purposes was that he had this sort of young hanger on named Mel Brooks, who he had met and, you know, he really, you know, Caesar was a great spotter of talent, among many other things. I mean, and and he understood in a way that his producer, Max Liebman, didn't, that this guy really had something. And he actually paid him out of his own pocket kind of early on and not, uh, you know, as a full-time staff writer of your show shows, just to kind of keep him around and sort of whisper jokes into his ear and sort of suggest things. And if it weren't for that, I mean, who knows what would have, what would have happened to Brooks? Uh, I think it's pretty clear, you know, it might have gone another way. 
It's so funny to think about Brooks as the hanger on, as the, you know, (laughs) please, sir, may I write a joke for you? But I see a problem here, which is on the one hand, you've you've argued, I think, quite credibly that Jewish comedy is the, the loyal opposition. On the other hand, you're arguing pretty credibly that Jewish comedy is the only show in town. And so I'm wondering a little bit. I mean, certainly when I think back to the stuff from that era that I still watch, or even if I think about my grandpa talking about the shows he loved, which included your show of shows, which included Phil Silvers, which the only Gentiles. I mean, you have to get a lot later to get like the Dick Van Dyke show, which is in the 60s. But the only Gentiles from the early, early era I can think of are the Honeymooners, who are all Gentiles, right? And otherwise, it's all Jews. So I guess I'm wondering, what were they the loyal opposition to? I think in some ways you're right that we have kind of re, not not rewritten, because that's not quite, but written a story that really sort of accentuates this Jewish trajectory of the development of American comedy. And I think that that's not wrong, because if you look at that period, you see so many people who are there. But just to take one name, if you said in, in at the time of the 2,000-year-old man, if you said, who is the most important comedian in America? At that particular moment, when it is up for a Grammy, there is absolutely no question what the answer would be, and that answer would be Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart was... He won not just the the best comedy Grammy that year, as I pointed in the book. He won the best sort of new artist, I think it was called, Grammy <laughs> uh, of that year. You know, beating out musicians. I think he beat out Harry Belafonte. It's in the book. To so be fair, to be fair, Newhart was great. Well, that's my point, right? I mean, you, yeah. that's a, you know, so, you know, you can tell this story with Bob Hope, right? You can tell this story with Bob Newhart, all the Bobs. Right. Um, you know, that's not an incorrect story, too, but but there is a way in which increasingly in that post-war period, you're, you're right that it's this loyal opposition becomes more and more dominant, particularly in the comedy field between 50 and 80, let's say. I want to add another complication here, though, because reading your book, uh, the thing that struck me as interesting, and I've never really thought about it before, here are all these comedians doing this meta stuff, right, as you put it. And they're doing it literally in not year one of television, but like year six of television. There hasn't even <laughs> been television for five years. And they're right. doing meta television, meta movies super early on, which struck me as kind of like insanely Talmudic, right? Like we're actually not interested in developing this thing. We're interested in asking questions about the form of the form of the form. Right. And I think that some of that has to do with the fact that the early days of television were really for a much smaller demographic audience. Television is unequally distributed across the country in its early days. You need people who have the income to buy those television sets. You need kind of the infrastructure. And so it's a very urban kind of area. So, you know, that is in some ways disproportionately Jewish, but it's also disproportionately educated. And so you have a kind of experimentalism, a kind of high culture. And again, this is not only Jewish, right? You have Ernie Kovacs, uh, who's doing sort of very kind of surreal kinds of things. You know, you have Playhouse 90, you know, in a non-comic sense, which had a lot of Jews, but it also had a lot of non-Jews. As television becomes sort of much more mainstream over the course of the 50s, by 1950, very few people have televisions. By 1959, everybody has television. You know, you need to go to kind of a much broader common denominator. And so I think actually that some of that meta stuff, Leo, that you're talking about goes down as time goes on. When you have someone like Newton Minow, I think in 72 or something, say that television is a vast wasteland. I'm not sure he would have said that 15 years before. And so you do have that kind of dynamic that 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 occurs then. There is nothing more depressing, disheartening and unfair than asking someone to sort of explain why something is funny. <laughs> so I won't do this. Uh, but but I want to take a moment and discuss one film in particular 
obviously, and, and we could do this with literally everything, including minor entries, because I really do believe there are no minor entries in, in the <laughs> Bell Brooks canon. Uh, but I want to talk about Blazing Saddles, which is a, a, a movie that, as you, as you write so very well, combines both some of the greatest kind of gross-out, flatulence-related, <laughs> incredibly body bits of, of humor ever captured on screen. And at the same time, what feels like a social critique that puts, uh, you write, you know, much more complicated than the plaster saint played by Sidney Poitier or even the fragile in all senses liberalism of Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. This is really a deep kind of challenging movie with real serious moral chops. I, unpack that for us, as, as you guys say in the academia. <laughs> well, you know, and I, one of the things, I mean, I think that, uh, Liel, I, I think that's an important point to discuss because one of the interesting things now, I mean, I think that now, uh, you know, you, 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 you look at Blazing Saddles and, you know, there's, there's a very copious use of the N-word, for example, and, you know, you sort of say, wow, that's, that's a lot. And even Brooks has said, you know, this was a, it's a complicated matter now. But you look at it then, and one of the things doing the research I was interested to find was that there were quite a number of black papers the Chicago Defender and others who said, you know, this is a great anti-racist movie. Like, go and bring a bigot, I think one of them says, huh. uh, to, uh, you know, to to watch this movie because they got that really what Brooks was doing was really sort of taking on, you know, a lot of these myths of the West, including in them these questions of, you know, all of these people. He uses the word morons in the movie, right? But it also racists and that this is a way of really exploding some of that as well. So, you know, there, there, there is very much that aspect to Blazing Saddles. And in fact, Barack Obama, uh, when he meets Brooks many years later, of course, you know, says this was an inspirational movie. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but this was an inspirational movie to me, right? That you could have a black sheriff in the West, right? You could have someone who, and, and you can see how that kind of could appeal to an Obama figure who says there's the possibility of this kind of thing, of breaking cliches, as I sort of call another of these things, right, to also break barriers. Um, and I think that's part of it. And one of the barriers, switching gears only slightly in Blazing Saddles, that it also does, you know, incredibly, is it breaks this kind of fourth wall in really a, a really revolutionary way. Because for those of you who haven't seen it recently, you may have forgotten that at the end of the movie, we kind of find out that it's all kind of artifice. It's all sort of a big fight on a Hollywood backlot. And everybody, I will say that, you know, like any successful movie, everybody argues over credit who, who came up with what joke and who came up with this. Everybody agrees that the ending was Mel Brooks's idea and that he really is saying, look, the truth that you really have to understand, and this gets back, Liel, to your first point that you were making, is all of this is made up. All of this is artifice. And I never, meaning Brooks, I never want you to forget in some sense that all of these myths, all of these movies are constructed pictures. They're not, they're not real. And given the power of the mythic film canvases that Brooks parodies, that's a, a hugely important lesson for him that he's trying to put across, right? It, it, it's not real. Uh, that's not what the West looked like. And you know, that that's even with the gags, you might forget that if he, if Brooks hadn't done this kind of brilliant thing at the end. With Brooks, there was, there was this higher thinking that you explained so beautifully, but of course it's all structured around real genius of the Sid Caesar school of the gags of the voices of the characters of the of the of the one-liners you know there's today that almost seems to be 
don't want to say a dying art, but that's not where the energy is in comedy today. Slapstick is, I would not say is alive and well. You see much more, if you look at your average Netflix special, it's the sort of endless monologue that is funny-ish, <laughs> but has very, very few big laughs. Are you seeing Brooks's influence in in comedy today, or obviously everyone is, is in some sense toiling in his shadow. He's everywhere. Nobody isn't influenced by what comes before, but it doesn't seem to be a big Mel Brooks moment. You know, I, I think you put it really well, Mark, because in some ways, you know, it's like whatever that old David Foster Wallace thing about like, what's water? Where the fish says, you know, how do you like the water? And the fish says, what's water? You know, so much of all of our comic consciousness is saturated by Brooks's achievements that it's not even like they're achievements anymore. They're just the landscape. So for example, the way in which we're constantly attuned to this way of stepping back, this kind of meta consciousness, mm -hmm. this parody, that's just what we live in right. now. You know, the idea of individual gags. I agree with you that that the the net you don't see that that much on Netflix, but we see it all over uh and here I'm a little out of my depth, but we see it all over TikTok and YouTube and sort of these, right. you know, these sort of short gag things. Certainly when you look at the Jackass movies or you look at Broad City, um you know, bodily humor is, and 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 we are actively in the same discussions about what does it mean to go too far in comedy that, you know, have always been the case, but that Brooks really sort of with the producers or something like that starts a very much more mindful and explicit conversation. So I just think we're in the water uh, right. of Mel Brooks, so to speak. But can I can I push back against this uh, Please, and, yeah, go ahead. And, and argue that artistically I'm, I'm making this point only slightly more forcefully than I ought to uh, for, for effect, <laughs> but I but I actually believe in its core. And my argument is this, my argument that um, in some point, I believe it was either in 1989 or 1990, Mel Brooks was artistically assassinated by a comedian, a Jewish comedian who stands for the exact opposite uh, of everything Mel Brooks stood for, uh, one who's much more dominant today. And I'm talking, of course, about Jerry Seinfeld, for whom there is no fourth wall, uh, for whom there is no combination of bodily humor. In fact, there's rarely a body uh, and definitely no morality for whom it's all kind of solipsistic obsessions and awkwardness and, and you know, atomized individuation, which are much more dominant than Brooks' truly kind of social oriented comedy, which we actually rarely see today. I think your distinction between uh, the collective of Brooks, the collectivism of Brooks and the individual atomism of Seinfeld is brilliant. Let me just say that first. And I think that would be, you should write that. I will say in a sort of a modification that you might include in the essay or you might push against in the essay, I don't know, right? But that one of the things that, of course, when we think of 89 and 90 in Seinfeld, we say the word Seinfeld, but what we mean is Seinfeld slash David, right? Right. Larry David for the uninitiated. Yes. yes. Thank you, Mark. Right. And curb your enthusiasm goes on to take a lot of those characteristics that you defined of Seinfeld, quite rightly, and put them into a key that feels much more as a, as a middle ground with Brooksy. That's right. With the producers famously making a cameo in, in one of the seasons. Yes, exactly. I, exactly right. The whole season is a joke about the producers, right? And, and David, you know, he loves having a Jewish 
I mean, first of all, it's a much more Jewish show in so many ways, which we can talk about, but he loves also having a Jewish genealogy. Like Brooks, he has father figures. I mean, literally, he casts a Jewish comedian, Shelley Berman, as, as a father figure, mm -hmm. as his father. And he, uh, you know, really sort of tips his hat to that. So I, I think in many ways that David can provide the middle ground. And, and in certain ways, I, I mean, I would defer to you guys, but of course, Seinfeld is in, in many ways, you know, so much more popular. But this gets back to that kind of distinction that we were talking about with Mark earlier, that if you tell the story of the history of Jewish comedy, it actually turns out that David provides a much more important set of links, I think, than Seinfeld himself does. He's the heir to Sid Caesar as a kind of collector of talent and producer and impresario. And Liel, I, after the show, as Liel sits down to write the essay that we've now assigned him, we're also going to talk about <laughs> whom you like less, Jerry Seinfeld or Philip Roth. I think they're they're they're, they're, they're in the same they're, circle of hell. Janice said that yes, they're, they're, they're the two-headed beast of beast of, of solipsistic of Jewish mediocrity, as far as you're concerned, mediocre so, artists. But yes. but while we're talking about you know about these genealogies. Professor, I, I have to ask the question that you probably knew was coming because you're also a historian of Jewish comedy writ large and you wrote the great book on that, which is, is there Jewish comedy anymore now that we're so far removed, except in some cases from the immigrant experience or the big sort of Eastern European Ashkenazi immigrant experience collectivized in Brooklyn? You so beautifully describe it in the book and here on our podcast, this kind of hothouse of energy. And now, of course, we're all just, you know, suburban lacrosse playing Americans. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, is there anything left? And and I want to say that occasionally you'll read a really bad essay by someone who says, well, the thinking is still Talmudic. The Jews still like to argue. And I'll say, eh, not really. I've taught a lot of, you know, Jewish teens, tweens, Gen Xers, Gen Y, Gen Zers. I have them as neighbors. I, yeah, I don't think I don't think we're anything special anymore in that way. Am I wrong? Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, when I especially when I was doing the touring for the the pre, for the Jewish comedy book, you know, people would say then they would look me in the eye and, you know, there would be like a kind of job. They'd be like, what's unique about Jewish comedy? Right. Can't we find these things in other and I would say, I don't know. I, you know, this is not right, right. You know, any kind of thematic argument, I am very skeptical right. of because you can always find it, you know, somewhere else. And you can find a lot of Gentiles who do it, right? I mean, right. The, the, the fact that Robin Williams isn't Jewish is still amazing to most of us, right? Again, one of those that I always have to check, right? I mean, even right. though I know it 5,000 times, right? But I, you know, it, it reminds me of a joke, right? Which is that, you know, someone starts telling a joke and they say, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you a joke. Two rabbis walk into a bar. And the person stops him and says, why does this have to, it's always rabbis. Why do you, you know, why do you have to tell this, this joke about rabbis? And I'm like, you couldn't tell about anybody else. Why don't you tell about plumbers? And so the guy says, okay, I'll tell it about plumbers, I guess, you know. Two plumbers walk into the bar and the first one says to the second one, look, I'm writing my Rosh Hashanah sermon and, you know, I'm having the biggest problem, right? So that to me was always been kind of a bottom-up approach to this question mark that right. you're asking, which is, you know, if people are using, you know, their humor and they're talking about things that are Jewish, then it's Jewish humor. And if it's not, then it's not, right? I mean, these arguments, you know, the argument that you were making earlier, the straw man argument, I mean to say, of, you know, it's an immigrant experience. That was that famous Irving Howe argument about American Jewish literature, of course, um, that, that it's an immigrant phenomenon and it'll die. And I think, you know, that's just not the case. So, you know, whether it's there's humor in Orthodox Jewish communities. There's humor of Broad City. There's humor. I was just watching Big Mouth uh, last night with Nick Kroll, and there's certainly Jewish comedy in that. I mean, one thing is we are we have cultural permission. Now I'm going to play the part of you 
we've, tell me if this is right. We have cultural permission to make fun of our mockers. We can make fun of rabbis. I mean, except in sort of, you know, the most Haredi, yeshivish, rabbinic court where maybe you don't make fun of the Rebbe. Generally, in the American Jewish experience, we can make fun of the types in our community in a way that that Mormons, and I think in many Muslim communities, they don't have permission to. That's really dicey. You know, I never speak to things that I don't know about, and I don't know about the sort of oh, I narrative. Do. Yeah, I but, do. Uh, <laughs> but I do agree with you that there has always been in the Jewish community that kind of license. Sometimes it was delineated around Purim, and it turns out actually, again, by coincidence, that the book is coming out on Purim. It makes a great Purim give. But uh, I, I think that is right. And, you know, and Brooks was always interested, as we were saying before, of being that loyal opposition. You bite the hand that feeds you, but you don't bite it too hard, right? <laughs> so I, I think that that, that that is right most of the time. I mean, there, there are people who are willing to kind of tear the whole thing down too, and that's, that's, that's fine as well. But I actually think that if you look, you know, on a scale from Elon Gold or Judy Gold to uh, Judd Apatow, you know, and everywhere in between. There's a lot of stuff out there, and 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 that's great. So let us conclude with bringing us right up to the moment. Mel Brooks, may he live to be 180 years old, is currently 92? He is 96. He'll be 97 in June. He'll be 97 in June. So so this young man, this young 97-year-old, uh, is just releasing a hotly anticipated sequel to History of the World Part 1 called History of the World Part 2, and it's not like we control the media or anything uh, because your book came out exactly the same day as this, uh, as this debut. So mazel tov on that. I, I know you probably haven't seen it, uh, so you probably can't comment on, on it directly. But, but I, I would like you to close with a meditation on what you think Mel Brooks has to deliver to a world in 2023 in which humor itself is construed as, as a political act in which jokes are often decried as offensive or hurtful in which, you know, censorship seems to carry the day. Uh, in other words, what can we expect from Mel Brooks in the least Mel Brooksian moment in American history in a century? One of the things that has always been amazing about a lot of comedians, and Brooks was certainly someone from the very beginning, from when he's dangled by Sid Caesar out of a window for suggesting certain jokes, that Brooks is someone who understands that comedy is about figuring out where lines are, that lines are always in the process of flux and transformation. And he is someone like many different comedians who is just trying to figure out what he can get away with. And I think that has been sort of his trajectory from pitching these jokes to Sid Caesar with your show of shows to the producers, you know, with the Nazi kick line to, you know, blazing saddles to Jews in space in the uh, trailer for history of the world part two, which we assumed we would never get. And apparently here it is to um, actually, I'm not sure if we can say this on the podcast. Can we curse on the podcast or we don't curse? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So there's this wonderful scene that I quote in the book, where they're putting on the play of the producers uh, and they're, they're doing tryouts. And Brooks has a line in one of the songs about who do you have to fuck to get something in this town, right? And he's not so comfortable with that. And he's like, maybe we should, and he says, maybe we should take it out. And Nathan Lane says, uh, have we met? You're Mel Brooks, right? <laughs> um, you know, and they keep it in, right? And they keep it in, as, as you may recall. So, I think that, you know, he is always someone who is thinking about where those lines are. And it will be interesting, as you say, Eliel, I haven't seen it yet. It'll be interesting, you know, with a cast that is 
dozens and dozens of comedians just from the trailer who have been inspired and influenced by this figure to see where they think about where they can draw the line and not. And I'm looking forward to seeing it as much as any Mel Brooks fan is. I'm, I want to find out the answer to the question you're asking. All right, rapid fire, and then we will say shalom. Uh, favorite and least favorite Mel Brooks movie? Favorite has to be uh, Young Frankenstein, actually. Especially now, I'm, the next project I'm working on is about horror. So a parody of horror films is just, you know, a Jewish parody of horror films. That's, that's great. Least favorite, unfortunately, is another horror parody, which is Dracula Dead and Loving It. Final question. If I want to be your acolyte, will you pay me out of pocket? Um, I will pay, you know, the, the, the going rate, according to Sid Caesar, was $50 a week. So, yes, I will pay you $50 <laughs> a week. <laughs> to do all your bidding, 50 bucks a week. Right. That's right. And pitch Good me deal. jokes. And to tell you jokes. Good deal. Yeah. yeah. Jeremy Daubert, thank you so much for uh, being our Jew of the Week. Your book about Mel Brooks is in fine stores and fine <laughs> websites <laughs> across the universe. <laughs> Thanks, man. This is great. Thank you. This was great. Thank you so much, guys. He turned dark night into day. He made his blazing saddle a torch to light the way. Mazel tops. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov? I'm I'm not done with Perm yet. I wanna I wanna give a shout out to the Rodef Sholem Purim festivities on the Upper West Side. It was fantastic. I did the kids programming upstairs. They had like hundreds of kids up there playing and learning. It was really, really sweet. And then when you walk downstairs, there was like the rest of it. And I was like, oh, I forgot. There are tons of other people here too. There was outdoor programming. I just was, I was very moved by it. It's not a plug for them. I don't belong there, but I do, I do pay the non-member rates to go to their events. <laughs> You don't belong there, so but what I are. am getting, what I am getting, Stephanie, is that if other schools want to compete for you, and remember, you wanted to be wooed, they better hurry up because you've yeah, gone there I a mean, few times. Later. I'm gonna try. I'll try some other places. My friend um, says that the Bene Jesharin Kids Service is her spiritual home, um, wow. as just a person. So I, I feel like I want to, I want to check that out too. But yeah, shouts to Rhoda. So my spiritual home lately uh, has been the wonderful Ridnaker Stiebel on the Upper West Side, uh, and my Mazel Tov this week is to the Rebbe there, Rav Daniel Stein, who this Shabbos gave an unbelievably, I too, Stephanie, am still stuck in Purim, mainly because we're recording on Tuesday and it's still very much Purim, uh, but gave one of the most beautiful Dvar Torah that I've ever heard. And he said, you know what the real miracle of Purim is? The real miracle of Purim isn't necessarily, yeah, the Jews were saved, Haman, the whole thing. It's like, imagine this. Everybody in Shushan knew that Esther was Jewish and not a single person told the king. All the Jews had a secret and no one spilled the beans. <laughs> Anyone who's known like three Jews know that this is virtually completely impossible. It's it's an achievement of great magnitude. It's never been repeated since. Rabbi Stein, mazel tov to you for this beautiful teaching. And, and may we all, you know, be like our ancestors and, and learn to keep our mouths shut a little bit more. I can't top either of those, but I'll do my best to run a distant third. First of all, big mazel tov to Annie Norman Schiff and the whole staff of Bina, the Hebrew school at my shul, which collectively put together a really terrific program Monday night, the Heir of Purim, and a great Megillah reading that was done by, by some people as well. It's just a really fun thing, mobbed with ruach and joyful spirit, and that was great. But also keeping it keeping it at my shul, I want to thank the BMKC, formerly the BMQC. We we used to have <laughs> we an orthography. Love a good acronym, uh, right? So so bear with me. We're going to dig deep in the acronym. It actually stands for something. The BMQC, which is NSFW for sure, 
was the B'nai Mitzvah Kiddush Committee back when our shul used the orthography that the kuf, I guess, was translated as a Q. So it was- By the way, B'nai- so much better. Please bring back the Q as kuf. You want the Q? All, so it was the oh, B'nai Mitzvah- the B'nai Mitzvah Quiddish Committee, which is the group of volunteers who get together to make an extra bit Kiddish when there's a bar bat mitzvah. I'm interrupting you again, but Quiddish is the greatest Harry Potter, <laughs> like from Harry Potter thing. It's like Shabbos Eve, you play Quiddish and then you have Kiddish. You just Kiddish. throw around bottles of Kedem and try not to break That's them. Right. <laughs> Kedem with a, with a Q. No. With, <laughs> so there's a tradition at our school that we've restarted, which is trying not to hire big caterers for a bar by mitzvah because that's prohibitively expensive for some people. So we try to get an extra big and robust group of volunteers to get together and make the meal, which is something you guys experienced when you came for Clara's bat mitzvah that had been prepared by congregants. And we're doing it for another person this weekend. But this week has been, the past week or two has been getting together to cook stuff and freeze it and prep it and slice it. And I've been involved in that effort and just seeing lay people come together to put on a really, really big uh, simcha for one of our own is just, it's just volunteerism at its best. And so to the BMKC, a huge amen, yashkoach, and Unorthodox production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by Oppenheimer, Butnick, and Leibowitz. Produced by Cross, Scaramuccia, Waller, Blyer, Hazlitt, Singer, Ruske, and Hacker. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Get your swag at tabletstudios.com. The episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music is by Gollum and Mailbox Theme by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Leonardo Bitron at Temple Bethel in Rochester, New York. And we come to you from Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. <laughs>